on New Year's Eve, I listened to a radio interview with a 22-year-old Tessa, a recovering fentanyl addict. In her teens, she had been involved with the social drug scene, but it was at 18 that she was introduced to fentanyl. For the first three years, she didn't see a problem with it until everything came crashing down. Even when she saw the problem, in her drug-induced state of mind, she didn't care about the problem. Then she began losing things in her life. Her family didn't want her around. Her friends didn't want to be with her. She sat alone in her bedroom, using. Her family finally gave her tough love. Either you go into treatment or you walk the streets. You can't live at home. She chose treatment. Her need to belong was so great that she knew she needed help. Psychologists talk about one of the deepest human motivations as wanting to belong, to fit in, to count. We experience this deep motivation when we experience the pain from relational loss. Did you know that emotional pain is the same thing as physical pain in terms of being recorded in the brain? It's real pain. The agony of separation and divorce. It's real pain. The hurt and worthless feelings of being dumped by a friend is real pain. The overwhelming grief in the death of a spouse is real pain. The emotional tearing of our self-worth when we're demeaned or bullied is real pain. In the last several weeks, we've been reminded that we're created in the image of God. We resemble God and we represent God. Our place is to dwell in the love of God, freely receiving and giving the love of God. But that image, as Richie talked about it, is bent. And that image, because it's bent, there's an inner void. And so we long, we long to belong. God is a God of relationship and belonging. And He created a relational universe. At the foundation of every living thing is the idea of relationship, the need for belonging. God exists in relationship. Three persons in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus says to his Father, You loved me before the creation of the world. So even before creation, God was in a bonded, attached relationship with his Son and with the Holy Spirit. Belonging is one of the most basic and foundational ideas in life. 
It's a basic human need. God created us with a hunger for relationship with Him and with other people. At our very core, we're relational beings. The fact that Facebook is now worth more than Walmart at $375 billion is based on this need to belong. With a solid, bound, bonded relationship, the human soul, or rather without that solid, bounded relationship, the human soul becomes mired in psychological and emotional problems. The soul and spirit can't prosper without being connected to other people. No matter how good we might be, no matter the character that we possess, no matter how many good things that we amass in our lifetime, without solid connectedness, without bonding to God and with others, we will suffer sickness of soul. I suggest to you this morning that Belonging can be defined by three key markers. Rootedness, acceptance, and intimacy. Each of these markers has a positive and negative, a bright and a shadow side to them. How many of you have had your genealogies traced beyond your grandparents? Okay, a great number of them. I, I have a cousin who's done this, and apparently on my matriarchal side has taken it back to the 1600s, although the last, you know, the earliest hundred years of that, are, the records are somewhat dubious. But there are some amazing stories that come through that you can put piece, this piece with that piece and that piece with another piece, and out comes a story. I have this fascination with my roots. I want to be rooted. We all do. Rootedness is a marker of belonging. And it's in our bonding and attachments. When we talk about bonding, we're talking about an emotional attachment that we have with other people. It's the ability to relate to another at the deepest level. When two people have that kind of a bond with each other, they can share their deepest thoughts, their dreams, and their feelings without having to feel a fear of rejection from the other person. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 20, or chapter 18 through 20, rather, we break into the story of David. After the conquest of Goliath and the Philistines, it seemed that David was doing everything right. But he had a guy who was tailing him. King Saul was tracking him, wanting to kill him. In the midst of this murderous plot is an extraordinary friendship between David and Jonathan, Saul's son. This friendship was so deep that in 
chapter 18, verse 1, it says that Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Wow. The author Eugene Peterson talks about this relationship. He says, both of them seemed willing to give Saul the benefit of this situation. Until it finally became too much, Jonathan realized that his, uh, that his father, King Saul, was going to kill David. So Jonathan helped David escape. And their, Jonathan's parting words to David in 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, says this. Jonathan said to David, go in peace. For as much as we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. An amazing promise, built out of an amazing friendship. Friendship for Jonathan Actually, or friendship with David, rather, actually complicated Jonathan's life. He risked losing his father's favor and his own future, but he stayed as David's friend. In fact, it was essential for David. I don't think David could have made it had not Jonathan been there as his friend. The bright side of rootedness is seen in our bonding and attachment, but there's a shadow side to rootedness, and that's isolation and alienation. Zygmunt Bauman, a Polish philosopher living in Britain, died just a couple of weeks ago, talks about a rootless society. In a series of books, he talks about life being liquid. In a liquid modern life, he says, there are no permanent bonds. And any that we take up for a time must be tied so loosely that they can be untied quickly again. When circumstances change, as they surely will, over and over again. He goes on to say that partnership. Our, our partnerships are increasingly seen through the lens of promises and expectations as a kind of product of consumers. Satisfaction on the spot. And if we're not fully satisfied, we return the product to the shop or replace it with a new and improved one. I think through all of this that our society learns and we learn that commitment and particularly long-term commitment becomes the enemy then of relationships. One expert counselor has informed his readers that, and I quote, promises of commitment are meaningless in the long term, so if you wish to relate, keep your distance. If you, want from fulfill, if you want fulfillment from being together, do not make or demand commitments. Keep all doors open at any time. 
Perhaps this is why we speak of connectedness and being connected rather than speaking about relationships and being in relationship. Instead of talking about par partners, we talk about networks. Unlike relationships and partnerships, which stand for mutual engagement, networks are a matrix where we can connect and then we can disconnect just as quickly. Ralph Waldo Emerson, 19th century American philosopher, pointed out that when you skate on thin ice, you are saved only by your speed. In other words, when quality lets you down, you go for quantity. If commitments are meaningless and relationships are not trustworthy and they don't last very long, then you swap partnerships for networks. Right attachment gives us a basis for morality by making us accountable to God and each other. Right attachment gives us an ability to handle stress because of the encouragement and the correction and the direction that we can receive. It gives us meaning for our accomplishments by placing us right in the middle and surrounding us with those who can support us and those with whom we can share. However, the shadow side comes when we suffer injury and hurt, especially repeatedly. And when we suffer injury and hurt, we begin to think of ourselves as, I'm bad, I'm unlovable, my sins are worse than any other sins. I don't deserve love. When we suffer hurt and injury, especially repeatedly, we begin to think of others that no one is trustworthy. People will always leave me. People are mean and critical. People want to control me. When we suffer injury and hurt, particularly repeatedly. We think of God that He really doesn't love me. He doesn't care about the way I feel. He just wants me to be good. He gets angry. He doesn't answer prayer. He'll control. He'll take away my freedom. He'll never forgive me. That's why we need to belong. That's why we need to be rooted Scripture also leads us to understand that our design to belong means acceptance. God created us in His image, says Genesis. Amazing. Paul says in Ephesians that He predestined us for adoption to sonship through, the G through Jesus Christ according to His will and good pleasure. Wow. John tells us as Matt mentioned this morning, that to all who received him, to all who believe on his name, 
He has given the right to be called, what? Children of God. Paul tells us that whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. Wow! That's acceptance. When I know that I'm accepted, it puts courage into me. But when I'm rejected, it takes courage right out of me. Again, we interject into the story of David. But we back up to 1 Samuel 17, where David encounters Goliath. Previous to this chapter, David has been anointed as a future king by Samuel. David has also been intermittently serving in, whoops, the sin that so easily entangles here, sorry. Um, David has also been serving in, in uh, Saul's court intermittently. So we come in chapter 17 to the battle with the Philistines in verse 11 where Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified of their enemy and the enemy's champion, Goliath. So in verse 18, we see that David's father, David out herding the sheep, David says, David's father says, I want to know about my sons, my sons who are out in battle. David, you take some food. And then he instructs him with these words. See how your brothers are and bring back some word of how they are doing. So, verse 24, we read David brings the food and gets to see Goliath in action. It says there in verse 24, whenever the Israelites saw Goliath, they fled from him in great fear. In other words, they lost their courage. David sees what's going on. He asks some things about what's going on. And his brother Elijah responds with anger. He says to David in verse 28, You're conceited with a wicked heart. You came only to watch the battle. The implication being that the battle is not going well. Well, yeah, I guess that's great. And David is going to tell, going to go back home, and he's going to tell a story to their father that's going to bring shame on brothers and shame on the Israelite army. Eugene Peterson's insights on this lead us to understand that Goliath's bullying was bringing shame to Israel and Saul. You know, there's a fascinating connection between shame and courage. Shame destroys courage. When we feel shame, we feel rejection. And it takes that courage right out of us. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. 
Shame has us believe the lie that we're rejected, we're worthless, we're unworthy of anyone's attention and affection, we're unworthy of belonging. Shame is the deepest of negative emotions, and we will do almost anything to avoid being and feeling shame. Unfortunately, when we have this deep fear of shame, it impairs our ability to see reality and it impairs our ability to respond appropriately. If we be, believe the lies of shame, we end up failing to appropriate the truth that God accepts us. Shame is a tactic of Satan to get us thinking that we don't deserve God's grace and that we can't live in victory. Here were David's brothers living in fear, feeling shameful, losing courage. Eventually, as we read in verse 31 and 32, word gets to Saul about David. And David comes before Saul. And in verse 32, David says these things to Saul. He said, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Do you get it? Let no one lose heart. Let no one be discouraged. For the Lord, who delivered me from the lion and the bear, will deliver me from this Philistine. David, the anointed upcoming king, knowing that he's accepted by God, moves a nation to victory. Scripture tells us that when we are accepted, we have the courage to meet the difficulties that come to our way. Scripture also tells us that this design involves intimacy. The psalmist notes that God formed our inward parts. He knew us from the earliest part of our makeup. That's intimate. Christ gave himself for us. There is no greater love that exists than one die for his friends. That's intimate. In Philippians, Paul says that he wants to know Christ and he wants to know the power of his resurrection and he wants to know participation in his sufferings becoming like him unto his death. That's intimate. He was willing to put all the garbage, and if you read the words a few verses before, it's, it's literally it, the garbage of his past aside in order to know what it meant to belong to Christ. Our desire to belong, as expressed through intimacy, can lead us to expressions of true love, or it can lead us to expressions of false or illegitimate or wrong love. Intimacy is a deep desire. Psychologist Eric Erickson talks about one of the predicaments of young adulthood as being, as confronting the crisis of intimacy versus isolation. Let's go back to David again and again with some insights from Eugene Peterson. 
So we're in 2 Samuel now, verse chapter 11. Here we have one afternoon, David walking on the roof of his palace, overlooking the courtyards below, and he sees a young woman down below bathing, and he wants her. And so he sends for her. He takes him to his bed. He uses her, and then he sends her home. Her name, Bathsheba. Her husband, Uriah, off fighting a battle. A while later, Bathsheba sends word to David, I'm with child. And so David contrives and schemes to bring Uriah home from the battlefront. hoping that he would have relations with his wife that night and get him thinking that he's responsible for that pregnancy. So Uriah comes home. But he's loyal. And he doesn't feel good about enjoying his wife because of all his friends still on the battlefield. And so he sleeps on the palace porch. David has to scheme some more. And now he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a letter to his general. And the letter said, put Uriah on the front lines of that battle. The idea being that he'll certainly be killed. And indeed, the next day, Uriah is killed in battle. Word gets back to Bathsheba and David. There's a requisite time of mourning, and David sends for Bathsheba to marry her. Wow. This is the man of whom it said he's after God's own heart. How do I put sex and murder and crime together with that? Not long after, David's pastor, Nathan, shows up. Telling a story about a rich man taking the pet lamb of a poor man. And David's anger and ignity, ignity, whatever it was, starts to rise. And then Nathan says, you're the man. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51 resounds with the agony of the shadow side of intimacy the bitter aftertaste of guilt as a result of lustful and murderous acts. But it also resounds with David's knowledge that there is a deeper intimacy, a true expression love that flows from the Heavenly Father. As enormous as David's sin was, it was greatly superseded by God's love. David cries out, Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. See, he knew it was there. Blot out, according to your great compassion, 
blot out my transgressions. He knew it was there. The good news is that the place of belonging is not a place of alienation. It's not a place of rejection and discouragement. It's not a place of elusive and illegitimate love. It's a place of rootedness that brings attachment and bonding. The place of a belonging is a place of acceptance that gives courage. The place of belonging is a place of intimacy that welcomes us into the love of God and others. If you're struggling with belonging today, I would encourage you to seek help and healing. One of the ways you can do that, I think, is, is to seek out the campus prayer ministry that A.J. Rook and others are leading. You know, God wants to meet you at the point of your need at the point of belonging. When I struggle with my rootedness, and I do, when I struggle with my acceptance and my intimacy, and I do, when I've heard that had the courage whapped out of me, when I feel isolated and alone, and I do, and we all do, I often go back to the words of a song, a song you and I all know, probably the first song I ever learned. And as we close, I'd like us to sing it as a prayer, a prayer of assurance and hope. So bow with me and pray and in song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong, they are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Amen. As I say to my classes, be warmed, be filled, be gone.